0: How do we equip our families with a biblical worldview? How do we prepare the next generation for life? How do I grow in my walk with the Lord and in my marriage? If you wrestle with these questions, you are in the right place to find answers. Welcome to the Entrusting the Faith Podcast. Welcome to the Entrusting the Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rutherford, and I'm excited today because I have with me Dennis Allen. He is the author of The Disciple Dilemma Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. He's been the CEO across several national and international enterprises, and he served in leadership roles in churches in several locations over the last 30 years. Two quick items before we get to our interview. First, if you go to our website at entrustingthefaith.com, scroll down to the bottom, sign up for our weekly emails so you know who is coming up on the podcast for the week and who you may have missed the previous week. Uh, You'll also get a free resource when you do, and you can find all our other podcasts on our website while you're there. Feel free to scroll through them, find other interviews uh, to really help you along the way. Uh, Second, this episode is just brought to you by my book, Leading While at Home. How Husbands and Fathers Can Biblically Lead Their Families. So if you've ever thought, man, I want to be a godly husband or father, I don't know where to start, or you've heard that you need to do something to equip your family, but you just don't know where to begin, well, if this is you or, you know, anybody you know leading well at home will show you how you can love Jesus Christ, love and serve your wife and children, and take responsibility for discipling your family. You'll be encouraged and given action steps that you can apply so that you're moving forward. Okay, now let's jump into today's episode.
1: Dennis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be
0: with all of you. So before we get into the book, share just a little bit about your background with the audience.
1: Okay, well, um, so I'm a follower of Christ. Um, I was a relatively inert young believer at the age of eight going forward, parents who uh, were steeped in the faith and took me to church, but I didn't really know what to do with that between the ages of uh, eight and 16. And then um, in high school, a youth pastor of mine just grabbed me and he said, hey, you got you to gotta park it or drive it. Are you going to be hot or cold? What are you going to do with this thing? And my journey in discipleship began there. In fact, the, the book, The Disciple Dilemma, I dedicated the book to, to the pastor that grabbed me by the lapels and said that. So follower of Christ since high school husband. I'm a dad to two grown children who never call home enough. Um, after I was out of college, um, I, I went into the Air Force, served in the Air Force for eight years. And uh, then uh, after eight years of that, I was in the professional business world, uh, perhaps a little bit, Eric, like you in the marketing world, business development world, and then on into uh, a role as a chief executive officer, which is loosely defined as the last guy to know, but the first guy to get blamed and everything. And um, and uh, my, my world is in, if, if you just think about companies that get in trouble, they have struggles, their market share may collapse, or they have problems with customers and quality and morale and all that sort of thing, and profits begin to erode. So my world is um, helping to turn companies around, which is kind of biblical, because if you think about the word repentance in the Bible, it's turning around. So I'm into corporate repentance, actually, and that's what I do. So that's, that's my story.
0: I love that, and that is true. If you think about uh, it, is that turn around, that repentance, and I tell you, being being in the corporate world, being a dad, uh, all of those are are leadership functionalities and things where um, you are making disciples. I, I, I don't think we think of that in the corporate world, but but you truly are, even if it's not what we think of as biblical discipleship, you're still doing the work of
1: of equipping learners, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is the kind of the interesting underlying piece for the disciple dilemma. When we wrote the book, it's it, it began with this idea that, hey, look at all the problems in the business world. People turn over and leave so quickly. People have no idea who they are or what they do. People just really aren't running with all their heart, mind, and soul to help make the business world well. And interestingly, Jesus has the same model about changing our lives in the world that we know of as Christianity. And so the problems in both sides define the definition of the book going forward. That is true. And so let's let's jump into the book, The Disciple Dilemma.
0: So what was the what is it about? And what was kind of the catalyst uh, for writing it?
1: Um, the first thing I, I I always try to say as a disclaimer to everybody is please, pastors, deacons, elders, small group leaders, when you listen to this, nothing that we're going to say today is a criticism of you or your role as a leader. This is just a healthy scrimmage by believers talking about things that Christ talked to us about. So whatever you hear, don't take the shame, blame route on this. Enjoy the ride. Let's ask some good questions. And I'm not asking you to buy the car. Just take it out for a test drive. Right. So um, the, the the catalyst behind the book was staring at how churches in so many locations, places that I've lived over all my years across a number of different denominations, um, kept on showing the same symptoms? Why are people walking out? Why are so many kids growing up, our families burning out and rejecting their faith? Why is it people have such a thin walk in the Lord? Why is it a lot of people are starting to say, I'm not even sure if Jesus is who he said he is. And I started going, Wow, as an elder or a deacon or a small group leader in lots of different churches, why is this popping up everywhere across the U.S.? West Coast, East Coast, North, South, Central. What's going on here? That was kind of the beginning, Eric, of why the book was written.
0: Now, and that makes sense. And so was this just like over time, enough encounters, enough conversations, where we you're like, okay, this is not this is not symptomatic of a single church. This is not symptomatic of a single region. This is this is widespread. And that did that sort of get the, I say, creative juices flowing. But it, at least it got you you thinking in that direction. Like, ooh, we need to we need to do something to to sort of turn the tide of this
1: you have that sixth sense that you're seeing something and you don't exactly know what it is, but it's out there. Then you start seeing repeats on issues and you're going, hmm, I'm seeing this over and over again. And then as all of us could see, if you just hit Google a day and surf around a little bit, go to the credible research houses, Gallup, Pew, Barna Institute for Religious Research, you can even hit the Humanist Society in Britain. And they're going to tell you you're not just seeing a one-off in your church. People are walking out the door. They're going mute on their faith. They're not even sure what faith really means and what it is. And this is like numbers, not just, you know, an occasional person in the church. This is like eight out of 10 people sitting in the pew next to you are struggling with these issues. That was really the thing that said, it's time to do something about this. And then I guess it wouldn't be fair if I didn't say this. I was planning on just maybe I could talk about this in a class or a Bible study and a bunch of theological thugs at the Oxford center for Christian apologetics hijacked me and said, you got to write the book. And so unfortunately, Eric, here you are stuck with me talking about this book. No, but I
0: think it's a great, it's a great point because, you know, I, I have seen this um, where in churches around where I'm at, as I'm trying to, to motivate, pray for, encourage, challenge, spur on others around me to 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 keep walking, right, and that growth with Christ. So, is is this the way we think of a disciple, and the way we do discipleship? Um, do you think has it changed over time? I mean, what are we doing different today? Where we're because obviously the outcome we're getting today is not good. And so what's changed over time so that we're now reaping, you know, the seeds of what we
1: have sown? The thesis that we're putting forward in the Disciple Dilemma is that for 18 centuries, we've been piling on baggage to the operating system that Jesus Christ gave us. He gave us this winsome, beautiful, magnificent biblical operating system, and said, this is who a disciple is. This is how a disciple thinks and acts, right? And and it's not about tasks, and it's not about actions, and it's not about works. It's about the transformation of a life. That was the original operating system. But over 18 centuries, Eric, the thesis of the book says, We thought, well, huh, Jesus didn't think about this. We need to upgrade this. We need to tweak this. We need to add a little here and there. And what we've slowly done is we've gutted the very core of discipleship out into a membership activity task model. And slowly but surely, we've begun to reap the symptoms that are being driven by these causes that pull the core out of discipleship. So there's symptoms cause that took the core out of Christian discipleship.
0: No, that makes sense and that, that membership and activity that task model. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What what you're seeing there and what you're what you're describing?
1: Yeah. And by the way, folks, if you have really any big complaints about what I'm saying, this is all Eric's fault for letting me on the podcast. So um, <laughs> absolutely the, blame me. <laughs> I I would say that uh, as we look back, the, the symptoms that we're seeing in people that drive this task action membership model have emerged because what we've done is we've we've begun to to say, the only way we can do well as a church is if we're powerful, if we have a large market, if we have great leverage in societies, and if we have the capacity to argue everyone else into the dirt. Now, that's a slightly different picture than Jesus talking about, like in 1 Corinthians, your model is weakness, and it's foolishness. Paul reinforcing that, weakness and foolishness. Jesus encountering people and living life alongside them, not really trying to make a power play. And what we've done with this is we've said, if I can get you saved, I can give you a Bible, I can get you through the membership class, you're good to go. So it's it's almost become like
0: like a sales program, right? Where you you say, hey, we're just trying to close the deal and then move on to the next sell as opposed to that that ongoing growth mindset and program. Am, does, am I re, does that am I making sense? Am, am I reading what you're what
1: you're kind of describing? You've got marketing and sales in your blood, right? <laughs> it is about the Christian church trying to convert a lot of things to quota. What much like social media, you know, you can watch the Netflix drama called the social dilemma, really a fascinating conversation about how we've Concentrated people's attention into certain things to say, if you want to be powerful and significant, do these things. The church has in the same way done this. They've said, and and I'm I'm again making the disclaimer: do not take a, a blame and shame trip on this conversation. Listen to 18 centuries of history talking to us. The church has largely said, What is the most effective way for us to gain influence in society? And we forgot Christ's statement, and we started going to the marketing quota system to say the way you do this is you pack as many people as you can in the pews. Don't sweat their personal, individual, relational development in Christ. Sweat whether or not they're getting the right sermons, the right programs. And it even translates into the family life, right? Which is check your kids into the Sunday school class. You guys grab a latte and hit the pew. We'll give you some relaxing hour of great music and a sermon. We'll take care of the kids. And when you walk out, we've checked off the block. Your kids have been discipled. Now, I'm not saying churches all say that, but I am saying that that paradigm is is solidifying in the minds of a lot of believers.
0: No, and I can see that as well, both, both from both cor- corporate, both at home. And that, I mean, that kind of really kind of, makes the, ask the question because discipleship and making disciples really at its most basic and strategic level really starts in the home. So as, as dads, like that's, that's the, the biggest task that we're given by God is, is to lead well in our homes and to model that well and to make disciples in our homes. Um, so as, as people are listening to this, and maybe, maybe they maybe they do discipleship in the home, maybe they just drop off on Sunday mornings, what's something that families can do to start this discipling in the home with their children?
1: We would, we would argue uh, that it's so very important that the home is the base for the children's development in Christ. If you go back to the Old Testament... And bringing forward to the New Testament, there's traditions like, these are some strange words, but I'll just throw them out, the Bet-Sephir, the Bet-Midrash, and the Bet-Talmud, which were the progressive discipling of children throughout Hebrew time. And Jesus taught that method with one fascinating tweak to the process. The Bet-Midrash was the time where a young person was out with the rabbi or with their spiritual mentor in the real world, and Jesus rammed that home. In the home, the really crucial part about this is we begin developing our children not toward religious conformity, not toward some process or procedure, but real discipling. That's the way Jesus did this. And so the Bible study and the prayer and church, those are all crucial as vitamins. Those are vitamins. That's not the main course in discipleship, right? So the idea of this is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with all the venues we were just talking about, having a great children's church and going to sermons and having a wonderful relationship with your pastor and with praise and mission trips and small groups and all of this. But in the end of the game, we have to come back to this piece, and that's this. Jesus said, you got to follow me. You've got to die. you got to take up your cross and you've got to walk with me. In that, it means it's a real relationship. I didn't just Xerox my mom or my dad's faith and say the right words and do what makes mom and dad happy. We have as families helped our children emerge with their own individual real faith. Long answer, but that's my shot at it.
0: No, and that I appreciate that. That makes so much sense. It sounds like um, that's something that's integral to, to the families, to the, to the growth and development of children as they follow Christ. And then, but you also talked earlier um, a little bit about how we have and just heartbreaking numbers walking away from the church, especially in the millennial generation. So what, what has discipleship or lack thereof had to do with that?
1: I wanna read you just a really quick quote and just for a moment, bask in this, in this set of words. He was born in a Christian country. So of course he's a Christian. His father, a member of the church, so is he. And so when that hereditary religion is handed down from my generation to his, why should it surprise us to observe young people of sense and spirit, beginning to doubt altogether the truth of the system that they've been brought up in, ready to abandon the station that they are unable to understand. Now, that quote came from William Wilberforce in the 1800s. Wow. And the point is, this dilemma has been hiding in plain sight among us for a long time. I say 18 centuries, but there's one quote just from recent history a few hundred years ago saying, We're struggling with the fact that we can't just bequeath to our kids. It's real living faith. The millennials are walking out on us. The Gen Zs are walking out on us, Eric. My argument, and I think research backs this up, because the salt has lost its saltiness. The light is very dim. We're no different than all of the other causes and actions and tribalism going on in the world. And so why should I, as a millennial, stick around with the one organization that's most reviled by modernity, the Christian church? Get them out of my way so that I can have a social life with my friends and my culture.
0: and, And that makes total sense in that idea of if there is no difference between the church and popular culture, why stay with the church? Right. Because again, like you, you hit right on there. It's like, it is, it is not popular. It never has. Jesus said, Hey, if you want to, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross, come and die. Uh, But, but now it's they're seeing some inconsistency a lot. And, and it sounds like even back into William Wilberforce's day, into the 16 1500s, a long time, there's been an inconsistency, maybe it's just a little more pronounced now in what we're doing, are we, is that back to almost that that KPI structure of we're, we're really as churches, we're looking for power, which that that's been ongoing, but you, you get what you measure. And are we just measuring the wrong things?
1: you're hitting dead center, Eric, on one of the causes that we list of the six causes we talk about in the book called the not main thing. And that is when you begin to try to run discipleship or even a church on metrics. That's a very damaging approach. And look, I'm a CEO. I'm all about metrics. I have my folks deeply disciplined into metrics and I watch the metrics. But leaders have to lead, and discipleship comes from leadership. It doesn't come from metrics. Therefore, when we start looking at how many baptisms did I have, how many members came aboard this year, how big's my capital budget, those are interesting conversations. But that's not the core of discipleship. It's a different agenda.
0: No, and and that makes sense. And so, would you would you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I think. I don't think it's a new thing. I think it's been ongoing. How can we, how can, is there a way we can
1: change that? Is it, how would you approach that? Uh,
0: elaborate a little more.
1: Yeah. And um, for anybody that thinks that I'm trying to pitch Harvard business school as a biblical solution, I'm not, this is a conversation <laughs> out of the old Testament, the new Testament. And we try to make the case very plainly, biblically, scripturally, follow this path. But interestingly, the Harvard Business School guys like this a lot. So with that aside, the main reason why organizations fail, whether they are commercial or Christian, the main reason that they fail is mission collapse. It might be a small distraction. It might be a complete 180 leaving the mission behind. But it's about the fact that leadership Has not realized or has intentionally caused the collapse of mission. And in that, now here comes another one of those things where blame Eric, not me. The statement in the book that we make is every single church of the Lord Jesus Christ and every single believer in Christ, every follower of Christ has the exact same mission. Stop sweating your vision statement. Look at the mission for a minute. And the mission is this you are to go and to make disciples, Matthew 28. That's your job. And you do it across all nationalities, teach them, baptize them. That's what we do. And the more you begin to look at your budget and your metrics and your issues and your problems, and the less you let your mission drive the way that you build a culture, the glue of your social structure inside your church, the more you're going to drift and follow these causes that blow discipleship away.
0: Now, and that make, that makes sense. And with kind of with that, is it, it's, you really almost have to abandon the numbers, so to speak, and just almost go to uh, our goal is to make disciples, regardless of how many people are in the door or come in the door is that, is
1: am I tracking with you? Yes. And, you know, we've said, you, you and I are both business guys. We, we understand metrics are really important, but it's, it's even more important that we make this statement. Most of the folks that we had this conversation with on podcasts eventually come around and going like, well, that's going to blow my church up because people are going to leave. If this is what you want me to focus on. This is like watching paint dry. I mean, discipleship's just not all that exciting, is it, right? You're telling me to do things differently. I don't do the things that are very popular and are bringing our people aboard. Some people have an attractional model of church. Some people have an intellectual model of church. I want to make a great intellectual out of you, or I I want to have the most entertaining venue so you'll show up, or I want to have the most experiential church. Come here, you'll get rich or you'll feel really good. All those things are off mission, just like the metrics are off mission. And the leader's job is to be able to say, even in the big churches, just like the small churches, you can lead, you can do the mission and not damage your church, but you have to believe the mission is the mission and not get distracted by the shiny things that will take you away from that mission, that will take you away from salt and light and those are the things that are attacking our families right now, as disciples of Christ. By the way, those distractions are diluting our discipleship in our families now.
0: Now, I, and I'm glad you brought it up it's it's that dilution. We're almost like trying to bring in the things from culture, from around us to I don't want to say bolster, maybe make maybe make Christ more appealing. Um, you get the Christian T-shirt and a bumper sticker, and and a good cup of coffee. Um, do you, do you think we realize what's happening, or is it is it one of those subtle things that sort of has snuck in over time, and we've just we've just drunk the Kool-Aid and thought this is the way to go?
1: Yeah, I think the metaphor is right. I think the frog has boiled very slowly, and I think we have not really realized where we are. There are a number of people today, you included, who are who are looking at this and going, wow, there's a lot going on that's not good, and we've got to do something about it. But the problem that we're facing is most of the organizations that we're talking to are chasing the symptom, not the cause. And chasing the symptom is a little bit like blowing your nose and hoping it makes the cold go away. You might feel better chasing the symptom, but you're not fixing the cold. We've got to go for the root causes that have slowly, inexorably, over 18 centuries, distracted us from the call of Christ in the Bible for discipleship.
0: Oh, now, and, and I like that—that that we're chasing the symptoms and not the cause. It's it's we're like we're trying to fix the fruit and not the root mm. uh, of what's going on. So you talked about uh, we're we're missing discipleship. We're we're chasing numbers. Um, is there? Would you throw out one more thing that we are sort of chasing that symptomatic? versus versus a root cause that we're just totally missing.
1: Okay, so one of the ones that's very interesting today is uh the idea that 8 out of 10 people in the pew, this is not the people who've already left the church. This is 8 out of 10 people in the pew today, their spiritual life is composed of going to church 1.7 times a month. And aside from going to church 1.7 times a month to catch a sermon, they have no spiritual life, no small group, no prayer, no bible study, nothing, right? And this is one of those things that we chase vigorously. We're always coming up with more programs, more activities. We're trying to entice you to show up at church because this is going to be really cool. This is going to be really interesting. That's not the way Christ told us to do this. That is
0: true. It's it's not. Tell me more about that because I find that I find that fascinating that you bring that up.
1: There was a fellow in the business world named Peter Drucker. Now, Peter Drucker was actually a political scientist who escaped the Nazis back in World War II, but he was struggling to get society to change, and he ran to politicians. That didn't work out very well for him. So in the 60s, he goes to the business world thinking, well, I can get the business world to clean up its act, and there'll be a force for change, and we'll get social good out of this. Things will go better. That didn't work very well. Then he finally stepped back and he said, you know, there's a group of people right outside my window here in Claremont Institute in California, around Los Angeles. If I can get these people in the game, we can do something. Those people were churchgoers. Peter Drucker's a Lutheran. Peter Drucker would tell you he's not born again, but he would say, I think that morality and Christianity have a lot to do with society. He came up with three disciples, Eric three really interesting disciples that he said if we get these guys in the game we can change the world and we're going to use my harvard business school marketing and promotional and business development model to do what i want to do and those three disciples the following names one rick warren saddleback church three years with rick warren bill hybels willow creek community church in Chicago. Three years, and these guys will acknowledge that he, Peter Drucker, was a fantastic disciple of theirs in building the model for megachurch. Third guy, Bob Buford, Leadership Network, how you franchise the megachurch. This is not a criticism of the megachurch, but it is a criticism of using a marketing model to attract, grow large, and have influence in society. That's not the model Jesus gave us. And when we use that model, we're diverting from mission. Wow.
0: I had no idea, no idea that (laughs) that Drucker had influence on those three guys in that capacity. But as I'm thinking back through and and thinking through those models, I can see it play out and man. And it's not there. It's it's everywhere. And I think, unfortunately, we're we're looking to mega churches as we want to be like them. Right. Because. They're successful, so to speak. Okay, if you're listening, you can't see the air quotes around successful, but <laughs> um, but because in our eyes, in the world's eyes, in the business world's eyes, they're successful, and yet that that's not necessarily the case in all circumstances or many
1: circumstances. Is that is that true? It's true in most circumstances, and this is the core of the issue. The core of the issue is. We now have a Christian culture. If you think of the 52 million people that go to church on any given Sunday in the Protestant world, 50% of them go to churches that have more than 2,000 people attending them. Now, if I roll the clock back 50 years, 2% of the churches were larger than 2,000. Today, 10% of the churches are larger than 2,000, but those 10% of the churches have 50% of the church attending people. It's not impossible. To be a mission-focused disciple in a megachurch, absolutely not impossible, but it's really complicated because when you have ratios of leaders to the people in the pews of hundreds and thousands, you're not going to have the relationships that Jesus said we're to have, the one-on-ones, one-on-twos, one-on-threes. That's the core discipleship. So leaders, here's the, here's the appeal, Eric. This is my uh, kind of truth moment. I'm coming out on this one, right? leaders you're going to have to step in and change the culture of your churches and your church communities if you want to get away from the dilemma if you don't change the culture we're going to keep replicating people in the high production environment of take a bible be a member hope it works for you bye
0: mm, wow and and i if so if you're listening that's something whether you're a family whether you're a church you almost have to, you have to evaluate, draw a line in the sand and say, okay, this is, you know, we're going to to change what we're doing, we're going to evaluate what we're doing, keep what is biblical and appropriate, but really start evaluating what is cultural and what is biblical. And so, so couple, one, one more question before we kind of wrap up here so for people listening. Maybe they're maybe their families, maybe churches. Any what key takeaway would you like
1: to leave them with? My plea is that you realize that your family is probably infected. I don't mean with a virus like COVID. What I mean is infected with the dilemma, with the effects of the dilemma. That's that's all around us right now. And so my ask for everyone here is reread with the idea of discipleship in mind. What is it Christ was telling us through the New Testament? What is it Paul was telling us? What is it the disciples were telling us? It blows up in your face when you go looking for it with the angle of a community of believers. Look at this, right? The the, the book that we wrote, Disciple Dilemma, is designed to try to help make that surface for you. But leaders, at the end of the day, whether you're a parent, or whether you're a pastor leaders at the end of the day are going to have to change the culture. And that process of changing culture is biblical, but it's not often talked about in churches. We just do what we do because we're a machine. You're going to have to change the culture. That's what we're asking people to do. Do we have a problem? If we do, then what? Absolutely. So that's something to evaluate,
0: evaluate, honestly, if there's a problem, where there's a problem, evaluate, and then take the action step to correct that, uh, to correct that problem. So, uh, Dennis, this has been wonderful. If people want to know more about you, if they want to be able to get more information about your book, where would you like them to go?
1: Check out discipledilemma.com. That's our website. There's a lot of traffic out there, a lot of podcasts. We have... uh, Uh, Videos like, much like Eric's uh, site here also, conversations with nuns and duns and pastors and missionaries and atheists and trying to say, what happened to you, right? And uh, discipledilemma.com, we're also under the rubric of the Disciple Dilemma on Facebook and YouTube and Rumbly and those kinds of places.
0: Excellent. So discipledilemma.com,
1: if you're listening,
0: make sure you check out the book, pre-order it uh, right now, or if not, definitely check it out and get a copy of it uh, very soon. Dennis, this has been a pleasure to, to chat, to learn more. Um, thank you for joining me today.
1: It was an honor to be with you, Eric. Thanks for having me.
0: If you found this episode helpful, please leave a review for us wherever you listen to podcasts. Doing so will help others to find us. Uh, Check out the show notes for resource information. We encourage you to do that for links and other references. We'd like to hear from you so you can message us. Your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, at Entrust the Faith. You can email us at info at entrustingthefaith.com. If you go to our website, which is www.entrustingthefaith.com, you can sign up to our email list and receive free resources as well as upcoming podcast episode information. So check it out. Lastly, just remember, legacies are built a day at a time. So start now.